somebody had, I heard about a shirt that said, this is not my grandparents' civil rights movement. And I always would like to say, it is because of your grandparents' civil rights movement that you are able to do this. Season two of Women. This season is solely dedicated to highlighting, celebrating, and amplifying the voices of Black women. Our voices, our experiences, our existence, our bodies, our lives matter. Welcome to season two. Black. 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 Black women. women. I'm Minnie Jean Brown Tricky. Talking from Burnaby, British Columbia, which is five minutes from Vancouver. I've been quarantined now for five and a half months uh, for the simple reason that I just turned 79 on September 11, and I want to stay safe. So I actually talk to young people at schools, universities, so I have usually a few gigs, I guess you could call them. So that's kind of what I do. I'm also in the process of writing, I guess you could say, a memoir of sort of what I consider to be a pretty interesting life. Um, I have a three-year-old grandson who I spend as much time as I can with, and So basically, what the quarantine means is that I don't have a lot of face-to-face social interactions. My daughter protects me from that. So it's a really interesting time uh, that I've had time to read more, which is crazy, think more, analyze more, and it's kind of fun. I'm not upset about the quarantine. I am very capable of not going anywhere. Don't have to buy anything. It's really interesting. What is my training? Quote, is social work. I started in university as a young person in journalism. Uh, ended up quitting college and got married. And later in life, I went back to school for social work, and I was fortunate enough to be among 12 indigenous students in uh, at Laurentian University in the first formation of a program called Native Social Work. So that was a moment in time that was so 
fortunate for me to be immersed in indigenous culture and come trying to come to an understanding, become knowledgeable of the issues that were pervasive in indigenous life. And then I went to Carleton University in Ottawa and got a master of social work. So I say to people, get a bachelor of social work or a master of social work because you can do anything with that. And I've been able to do just about all kinds of things with those two designations, I guess you could call it. Yeah, that's kind of a background. I have been an activist. You know, I'm a convicted tree hugger. I, I see the relationship of all the social justice issues as being very connected. And so that means I'm active in so many different ways because they're all about the same thing done all kinds of things in terms of anti-racism training, actually do anti-racism training with my daughter Spirit Tafik. Now, we often do uh, conversations at universities. I try to talk to young people as much as possible because I, I was involved in a desegregation crisis 63 years ago in Little Rock, Arkansas. And those of us who were called the Little Rock Nine were 14, 15, and turning 16 in 1957. So when I'm speaking with young people, I keep trying to remember what I was like when I was young, and I I transpose myself into this person which allows me to respect young people because I know who I was then and I speak to them as if they're the same as I was then. So it's, it works really well. I think that's a kind of a tells who I am in a sort of nutshell. Well, I was born in Little Rock, Arkansas in 1941 interesting um, sort of growing up in the Jim Crow South, which is a whole kind of framework of oppression that I knew about, but it didn't seem to compromise my life. So sometimes when I'm talking, I discover things about myself that I hadn't thought about before. So I really like these conversations because They inform me as well as the audience. So my mother was the 13th child, but I was the first grandchild in her family. So I was, I don't know if there was any such thing as, I was such a gift to that family. And they made me feel as if I was a gift So that might explain, um, so I I just kind of thought about it a couple of days ago. It might explain who I am sort of at this point in my life. Certainly, 
as an older woman, I don't bite my tongue. I speak my truth. And I think that comes all the way, goes all the way back to this little girl who was so loved and so welcomed into this family. So in the Jim Crow South, it means water fountains with colored and white. It means restrooms that say white ladies with a beautiful door and colored women in the basement somewhere. Uh, it means, if I can think about some of the things that I found kind of disturbing, I think it was um, discouraged from, from trying on clothes in stores. But the other thing that I came to a conclusion about is when somebody asked me, uh, were my parents part of the civil rights movement? And I can kind of say, if you're Black, you're always part of the civil rights movement. And there were ways that my mother made all our clothes so that we would not be subject to the kinds of discrimination that we would find in stores. And I realized that many of my friends had mothers who made their clothes. Now, my sister, who is younger than I am, seems to think that they made the clothes because it was cheaper. But as the mother of six, I know now that it was a form of resistance. It was to make us feel loved, well-dressed, without having to be embarrassed in a clothing store. So no restaurants, but there were black hotels, black restaurants. There was a teenage hangout, well, a teenage place where we could go and there would be a young car hop who would put our food on a tray. That was something that was really important in the 50s. So we ha I felt like we had parallel lives so that the Jim Crow setup didn't take away our confidence. Uh, my mother was a Girl Scout leader of the colored Girl Scouts. I went to Girl Scout camp and white teen camp. At the time when I went, I didn't realize that the white girls had gone through the summer and the black girls went at the end of the summer. It was the same camp, but it was at a different time. And um, church had a choir, although I was never religious. I wasn't then and I'm not now. But church, the African-American Episcopal Church, which had been an activist church since its inception, uh, made sure we had activities, fun things to do. So even though I was brought up in the Jim Crow South, I had a really good life. You don't really know what white people are doing except in the media, in the magazines. And magazines like Seventeen had no girls of color in any of its articles or any of its layouts. So you did see, you know, I'm just going to be honest. It was a time when there wasn't even that expectation. It wasn't going to happen, so you didn't really care. 
there was Ebony Magazine, which was a Black-focused magazine. So we got to see ourselves and didn't really care that we weren't in their sort of mainstream thing. So I I felt like I was really protected. And you learned it. You can get your driver's license when you're 14 in Little Rock, Arkansas, so I could drive myself and my friends, uh, go to visit my cousins in towns outside Little Rock. So I just felt like I had a, a good life that wasn't really so influenced by whiteness. And when I hear other people talk about it, some people seem to feel that they were cheated or, or something, they missed something, but I don't think I did. And I think that may be the truth of many young people in the Jim Crow South. There was a lot of protection. And I think that that's how things were. So you're not going to worry about it. You don't really care because you have your friends, you have things to do. I read constantly. That was a period before television sort of entered people's consciousness. So I found adventure and excitement and information by reading. So I guess that's the sort of background story. What I do when I'm talking is I feel myself going back and forth. So it is a process whereby I actually revisit what was happening and sort of add what I've learned over time. Uh, But I think that having been protected, that my expectations were that I would still be safe. I, you know, part of the American social conditioning experience is lots of anthems and pledges and uh, the Russians are the enemies not here and hiding under the desks because the Russians were going to attack and the Soviets and uh, that that's an American characteristic to always point to an enemy outside without actually looking at what's going on in the place, in the country. So I'll tell a little story about today. Maybe the protests have gone off the front page and pundits in different media are concerned about what's happening in Hong Kong and are they in danger and is this a human rights issue that Americans should speak up about? And I'm saying, are you kidding me? You think they got a human rights issue? You've got the biggest human rights issue right in your country, but that's kind of the way that it works. It's always outside and never, the enemy is always outside and never an analysis of what's going on in the actual country. Now, that may be getting better a little bit because I think the Black Lives Matter movement snapped that into place. You're going to see this. This is this is important. Look here. Look here, people. So the question was, so I think maybe it was that sort of safety that I felt uh, that I thought going to Central would be interesting. I, I think um, the lynching of Emmett Till was a big shock, and he was one month older 
than I was because his birthday was in August. Mine was in September. And there was a certain awareness of potential danger based on what happened to him. Because Mississippi is right next to Arkansas. And the two states are always competing with each other. Who's going to be the worst off in the 50 states? And it's usually a tie between Arkansas and Mississippi. So I could see that Arkansas held that kind of danger as well. So, yeah. So I, I don't think because I've been, you know, there's this whole thing always in the States. It's the best place in the world, blah, blah. And even though you're living in Jim Crow, that stuff filters in. It comes in. Social conditioning is very powerful. So having never actually been the victim of specific individual hatred from white people, I didn't feel that it would be an unsafe thing. I just didn't. You're interacting with white people in different ways all the time, and they're mostly not attacking you. So yeah, I just thought, well, this will be fun. This will be interesting as part of the youth. So there was one stadium for high school and one track. So the football games for whites were held at Central on Friday nights, and they were held on Saturday for black kids and any kind of track meet, May Day, or any of those things. They had theirs, and then we had ours. So I think when you're in it, really, you kind of don't see it. And I would say that I learned the most about the United States after moving to Canada than I did while I was in the United States because it allows a a certain distance and and a, a way to look at it that is not the same as being in it. So... Yeah, I really, my two best friends and I thought, oh, we'll walk to Central because we lived in the Central High neighborhood, so we could just walk. So the the mob violence, the hatred, the opposition came as a real shock. It was shocking, and in part because of what we'd sort of been brainwashed with. This is the best place in the world. Uh, liberty and justice for all, blah, blah, all that stuff that is so pervasive that you don't even know that you're internalizing it and it's going into your being. So yeah, it was pretty shocking to be hated, to be the target of hatred, hatred and vitriol and violence. But yeah, taught me a lot. Oh, that's making me... I think it was at Central. Ooh, never asked that question before. But it was at Central, in the school, every day, watching people behave so horribly and feeling... Okay, so, you know, the whole kind of training... That you're that subliminal, I guess, in the United States is black inferiority and white supremacy. And the supremacy part left for me on the day watching all these people 
with their mouths open, screaming obscenities and hate and ugliness. And that flipped that script really quickly for me. Oh, so I'm the one inferior? I don't think so. And when I realized my beauty and my character, and this is making me cry because I never had this question before, was watching them being unable to think. You know, you just think, my God, you're supposed to be the ones who are superior and you don't have the ability or the willingness to think. And I keep hearing people say, well, you know, uh, the history books, this and no, I didn't believe their history then and I don't believe it now. And I knew that and they knew that and it was up, just filled me with my value. Just never asked this question, but that's what happened. Their behavior and their stupidity filled me with my own value and my own beauty, which of course would cause them to hate me so much because that is not what they want from Black people. They want Black people to feel grateful uh, somehow to, oh, I'm at Central. Oh my God, isn't this great? So that's when I felt, oh, this is, this is amazing. They're trying to break me, but in fact, they're filling me with my own worth. So I, I was expelled from Central for responding to an attack by telling these five girls who hit me on the head with a big, a purse full of combination locks. And I said, leave me alone, white trash. So when I was asked later why I was expelled, I said I was expelled because I was tall, beautiful, and proud. And unlike who they wanted me to be, how they wanted to see myself. You know, they called you words, they spit on you, they do all kinds of disgusting terrorist acts. And the thing that always made me the most upset was when they said, you're ugly. And I was thinking, I am not ugly. But that was the thing that really made, that infuriated me. Never been asked that before and hadn't thought about it. But I think, I think that was it, how I gained so much from that experience, which would drive them nuts if they knew that they had been instrumental in the development of me as a, I don't know even how to describe it, but that my knowledge of my wholeness came from all that hate, because they just seemed stupid. And that was a good thing to figure out. No more white supremacy for me, I'll tell you. I'm, I'm not sure if we should have to figure that out at that age, but there were a lot of things that we had to figure out at that age that I, I that I, as I, I think about it now, that when I also think about the Little Rock Nine, I would propose that that maybe happened to all of us, 
that we saw our value in ways that we couldn't have imagined before. And so it's, it's visible in who the nine, or there are now eight of us, it's visible in who we are and how we think and what we do and our sense of our own worth. Ooh. Oh my God, that was, uh, that was a big question. My mother, my mother, my mother, she, she had a way about her that, um, I mean, I thought she was the most beautiful woman on earth, of course. And she had a bearing that was, well, she was the 13th child. So maybe she, she had a similar experience in terms of being the darling of her sisters and brothers and her family, but just her, just, I don't, I don't really know how to describe it, but she just, in that, you know, we didn't have any money, which is interesting, but she was elegant in a way that was interesting because she made her own clothes and she, well, I mean, you only got to go dress up when you went to church, basically. She was elegant and she yeah, I don't know. There's another question. She she had a a you know the the thing in in the south is so when I talk about her resistance, okay, resistance, making your children's clothes. That's resistance. That is not being a member of the civil rights movement, but that's pure resistance to an oppressive regime. Uh she and it was fairly common that white people, there were salesmen who would come by selling probably overpriced stuff. And their their way of doing it was to knock on the door, walk in the door and call the person by mostly her first name. She did not give her name. She gave her name as Mrs. W.B. Brown so that they couldn't call her by her first name. So there were these little resistances that we didn't know were resistances at the time, but then later, oh, okay, so that was her game. So yeah, she just, I just loved her. And she encouraged me. Like one of the things uh, I'll say that during Central, I mean, I'd always been a night owl and I like to read late into the night. And she would have, as a student, she'd say, you got to turn off the lights and go to bed. And so when I was at Central, she didn't do that. She just let me read as much as I wanted to. So I probably went to school half, half alert because she wouldn't stop me because she knew how much pleasure it gave me. As the nine... We saw lots of people who became, who were famous, who were important. Um, but yeah, she and and her courage to allow me to go to Central. As the nine, we say that our parents were the real heroes because once we decided on our own, individually, to do it, it really required them to allow us to do it 
And although we didn't tell them anything about what was going on in the school, um, I'm sure they knew that it wasn't the happiest place. But to show confidence, that I think is the key that each of our parents said they wanted to do it. My mom, my dad said she wanted to do it. She's confident. Let her do it. And so they, they decided that they would let us. And so that's pretty amazing too. That's amazing. And you know what? When we walked in the house, and we got the question, how was your day? We said exactly what every child in the world says to their parents, fine. That was it. So yeah, the bravery, the courage, the faith in me. So that's, I think. So is that in the civil rights movement? Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. So Hannah Arendt, who... Um, is known for her anti-fascism stuff. And I'm paraphrasing, said that the parents sent their kids into this situation, but our parents didn't. Our parents allowed us to send ourselves. So that's pretty amazing. She was and continues to be the most admired woman in my life. I mean, just, you know, it was a complex family, you know, obviously issues, wasn't perfect, all that. I mean, there's no uh, perfection in any family that I know of, but just her courage and her trust in me. I mean, that's a big, wonderful excitement. They must have known it was hard, but they allowed me to be actualize what I set out to do. That's pretty amazing. I mean, I'm, I have six kids. I'm, I'm trying to think, I hope I'm, you know, I hope in the final analysis, they'll see me the way I saw my mother. You know, I let them make mistakes and I help them make mistakes and all those things. So what I say, um, I have said in a group of parents, I said, if you're if you're doing it right, they're going to surprise you. So you better be ready for it. And I think that that's, that's what I, that's my sort of high value that parenting, they should surprise me. And I'm going to try to be big enough to go with those surprises. Well, for me, it is having a responsibility to try to make things better. Uh, to learn as much as I can so that I'm speaking truth as much as possible to see the relationship with all the sort of oppression issues as interlocking and significant and therefore being present in different spaces because they're about the same thing. So I think being an environmentalist, a pacifist, a nonviolence as a way of life advocate that I can model it, teach it, do it, and deal with the complexities of 
Well, there was a, a, one of the things I think that was part of the Jim Crow South among black people was kind of uplift, quote unquote. And it wasn't about, uh, it was about behaving in such a way that didn't, well, let me think about it. You were expected to have manners, be polite, although, and do things to enrich your own life and to try to be do things in the interests of other people as well. Okay, so if you think about what Central is about, it was perfectly selfish on my part to sign up to go to Central, but then some re- figuring out really quickly, this is for everybody. This is important. People are watching. This is, we are getting letters from all over the world. This is meaningful to people. So I have a responsibility, except when I got expelled, not to try to fight back, not to name call, not to be disgusting in that school. And so so as a black woman, I feel a responsibility to children, men, women, everybody. So one of the things I think when I was doing a lot of social work, I was the executive director of a, an organization that was about violence against women and cultural interpretation or translation for immigrant women. And one of the kind of things that happened, partly as part of my Native human services back in the day and in the modern context of feminism was that people of color, including indigenous peoples, felt, or at least I did and many of us, that we couldn't hate our men and boys. We had to, they had to be part of the activism that we did on their behalf as well. That we didn't have the luxury to just say, woman, I can't do that because our men and boys are in distress. So that kind of kind of made uh, women of color feminist feminism different from white feminism because we couldn't abandon our communities or our male components. So that may be... Um, the black woman concept that my work, my beliefs, and my activities are on behalf of more than just women, because our communities are in distress. Our black boys are in danger. I think Audre Lorde had a quote in one of her books that says, We can talk about feminism, but when my sons are threatened by the police, are you going to be on my side? And so I think that pulls it together in terms of we have to be vigilant as women on behalf of our children and our families and our communities and other Black people and other people of color. So it's a... It's a kind of a cool responsibility.
taking it seriously. I know my answers are long, but they're great questions. And there's complexity in, in thinking about it. I don't know what black joy is because my relationships are really cross-cultural, right? They're, they're just this, I, something that I really wanted for my own children. Growing up in uh, Southern United States, two groups, black, white, separate. So part of my wanting my children to have a range of experiences with every possible culture. So as if I'm thinking, I, I have a lot, I grew this year a bumper crop of collards, right? So I'm enjoying cooking them because they, you know, they are not kale, quote unquote, which I hate. I know that's against the whole totality of cuisine. In terms of what gives me joy is uh, food. Uh, what also gives me joy is my garden. My um, I've had gardens for mo most of my adult life. And so where is my joy? My joy is in, has been in being able to grow and process enough food. And we lived in Northern Ontario so that my children could actually go into our root cellar and shop for what they wanted, jams, jellies, pickles, every possible kind of thing. So whether that's black joy, that's my joy. So black joy is hanging out with my sister or talking for four hours with her on the phone because we don't see each other and we're the only two left in our immediate family. I had two brothers who passed away. So I get joy talking to her and we gossip and we lose our, we talk black and we use expressions that are specifically black. Uh, so I find a lot of pleasure in that. Now, I lived in Little Rock for 10 years, uh, being a companion to my mother. Uh, between, I think, 2000 and 2010. There was joy in getting to know her again because I'd been away for so long. And sitting around my mother's dining room table was a space of Black activism extraordinaire. My brother was a, an organizer who kind of left home at 16 and went to Oakland and hung out with Black Panthers. He went back to Little Rock and organized them to the hilt, was part of an organizing effort. So a lot of important things happened at that dining room table, like discussions, arguments, strategizing. So I got a lot of joy sitting at that table under thinking about what it had witnessed and what had happened in that room. So my, my black joy is about activism. Uh, have six kids, having them all together. Oh my God, that's so amazing. It's cacophony, it's loud, it's arguments, it's this side, that side. Garden, 
family and activism. That's, that's where I, that's my black joy. You know, I mean, wonder, let's talk about black joy is to have six kids who are amazing. Each in his or her own way. Oh my God, it's just, and to be 79, I mean, there's so much joy in that. It's like, wow. So I, you know, I feel joy a lot. I'm so joyful, I'm actually tearing up. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's amazing. So if you were to talk about what is my activism now, it's actually talking to kids. For 20 years, I've been doing this thing called Sojourn to the Past, which is was started out as a 10-day in interactive history project where we took kids to selected sites in the South and met with the actual people. Uh, one of the people who was really important to the program was John Lewis, and we did over 90 trips to Atlanta and other places. And John Lewis met with our kids. He only missed two. And and one of the things that I was talking about is when John died, everybody who, everybody felt that they were good friends with John. And I said, if I can be like that. That would be my hope. So getting a chance to talk about nonviolence. So we've taken 9,000 students, um, activism, knowledge of the civil rights movement, and like uh, the American history books, just like Canada's, they don't teach very much about anything. It's kind of fairy tale esque, but in death, more people learned about John and what he had done and the civil rights movement. So he was teaching till the end. I really um, want to talk to young people because I think they are kind of neglected in terms of affirmation. And there's so much like what happens with the kids that we took on Sojourn, we had to cancel our trips this year. Well, they said, if I had known this, I would have been a different person. So I tell them that the reason they don't know about Little Rock is that people don't really want them to know that 14 and 15 year old kids could make president act, who could by just going back by being there to transform the world in a way briefly. So, yeah. So, yeah, I, that's my sort of agenda is to help and talk with young people so they realize what who they are and what their potential is and stuff like that. But that's who I want to talk to, want to have a conversation with. And I ask people when I'm going to a school, please show the old woman pictures. You can't just show the beautiful young girl because when I walk in the room, I'm going to be the old woman. So can I just tell you a story? So I was in New Zealand two, two years ago. I think we went to 12 schools, high schools, and the kids 
were so knowledgeable. Unlike Canadian and American kids, they knew everything about me and they were so excited. And some had gone over a huge mountain pass and had to have a snow removal vehicle to make a path for them to come. And it's a reciprocal kind of thing that I get from them energy and I hope I give them something as well. Kids are just so amazing and so want to learn. And so, yeah, I get energized. I get really energized. I've been to Northern Ireland. They feel a real kinship with the American civil rights movement in Cape Town, South Africa. They're teaching high school kids apartheid using Little Rock and just I mean, it's such a good story. It's such a good story. And it has the potential to inspire kids. So I have a lot of images. I'm really lucky. And there are video clips. And so I'm fortunate. I would, I don't think I'd be able to do it if I didn't have all the images. I just have been lucky in so many ways. So uh, Malala got uh, the Constitution Award. Uh, about five years ago, just before she got the Nobel Prize. And the people who organized it didn't ask me to write a speech. They went online and picked out things. So they wrote my speech with my own words. And one of the things that I thought was really important is that Malala and I had the same experience. I was lucky enough not to be shot, but it was the same kind of opposition. But in our grand scheme of things, talking about education and the world and ideas, nobody ever says that the Little Rock Nine had the same kind of experience as Malala because we always want to look and say, oh, poor them. Oh, my God. Oh, we're perfect. They're messed up forgetting all about the horrible things that are happening to kids in American schools. I've gone to schools where they have cops and guns and metal detectors, and then I'll go 20 minutes away, and they have what they call a resource officer. He sits at a desk, and all you have to do is ring a bell to get in your school. And I see the disparities, the horrific inequality. So when I'm talking to kids, I really want them to feel a sense of what their possibilities are because nobody's telling them that. They're telling them that they're criminals. They're, yeah. So, I mean, it's really important work, I'll tell you. To me, it's it's really important work. If I could think of what I want to do, is help youth transform themselves. And then in some ways, I think I do. Well, I'll tell you what I used to tell my daughters, okay? When, I think on one of Spirit's podcasts, she said, when she was living in Northern Ontario, and I think even my oldest daughter, Morningstar, had the same feeling, that they didn't think that they were beautiful. And then when they got outside that closed space, they thought, oh my goodness, 
it's kind of like what happened to me. Like, I'm beautiful. I didn't even know that before. But this experience is telling me I'm seeing that I'm beautiful. But then we had the sort of thing about the hair. And my one daughter, Layla, I think she pulled her hair back so tight. I said, you know, people pay to have hair like this. People go to the beauty shop and get their hair made to look like yours. So it's a, you know, it's a kind of constant sort of trying to get them to see their own beauty. Um, No matter what color, none of that is really, really important. Sometimes young people feel as if somehow they're not beautiful, but on the other hand, they're more beautiful than ever because they felt free to be themselves. And no matter what, that whole thing of who helps young people to be free to be themselves, and I'm not really sure who, but I, I cut all my hair off, I think when I was 19, I think. And I, this young woman told me much later, she said, I saw you walking down the street and I said to my mother, I want my hair like that. And of course she was getting her hair pressed and there wasn't even a perm. Her mother said, you won't be able to do that until you move out of my house. And she said, the day I moved out of her house, I started wearing my hair natural. So sometimes just paying attention to, there's, I've never seen more beauty in my life. It is, it's just amazing. So to, let me think, let it come. I guess if I were to say how to be is to pay attention to what you're saying to yourself and not attention to what other people are saying. When I teach nonviolence, I say we're deeply inherently nonviolent or else we wouldn't be able to sit together in a room. And so I, I say we're deeply inherently beautiful, period. And that that's something that we maybe have to manifest, maybe have to do some affirmations or whatever it takes, but to feel that inner beauty that you have. And then my mama said, pretty is as pretty does. Okay, that sounds good. We all, we all lack confidence. I mean, there's no question about that. Uh, somebody, a young woman said, how did you get so much confidence? I said, brick by brick, right? Brick by brick. It didn't all come. It was brick by brick and just adding bricks. And to understand that that's how we do it. We add, it doesn't, it's not, doesn't flow right into you. But it's about a building process that is, it's kind of cool. I mean, it, I call it keeping the blood pumping, keeping us thoughtful and and also really learning. So to be lifelong learning is just super invigorating and inspiring. Mistakes and all. There's so much going on 
in terms of activism. I'm not out on the streets. I've done that. And then some. I think that I'd like to be sitting around with a group. Actually, I've done that. Sitting around with a group of young activists and just hang out, right? And somebody had, I heard about a shirt that said, this is not my grandparents' civil rights movement. And I always would like to say, it is because of your grandparents' civil rights movement that you are able to do this. And I don't tell people what to do. I would never advise without permission. But I know a lot of stuff about movements and activism. And I wouldn't be arrogant enough to advise, but I wouldn't mind being in a few conversations, right? Just hanging out and talking and talking through. And and so I do that in a way with much younger kids who aren't really activists, some young people here in the lower mainland of BC. So I can, I can do that. I can hang out with them and we can discuss stuff. And so I wish there were opportunities for more of that. So I guess my activism is talking to young people as much as possible or having conversations. And no, this nonviolent stuff is hard to swallow, but it is so the right thing to do. I feel, you know, I I talked earlier about how they're worried about Hong Kong. They need to be worried. The United States and Canada, they need to be worried about what's going on here and there. And we need to look at it with some clear sight. Sure, we have interest in international issues. They're the same kinds of issues. But damn it, look here. Because that's that game. That's the game. Always look someplace else. So that is kind of my thing. That's what I say. Look here. And maybe you can figure out what ha- what's happening there by looking here. So let me just say... I'm not quite finished now because more stuff is coming through. Something has shifted because of Black Lives Matter. I mean, media are actually using the word white racism. They're using the concept white supremacy, something that has just been underutilized for a very long time. So there is a shift. Women is a series brought to you by Geneva Peshka. This series hopes to serve as a beautiful reminder to take the time to truly see each other, both in our differences and commonalities. On our site, womendocseries.com, you will find a gender non-specific toolkit that will help you facilitate an intimate conversation like those featured in Women. We encourage you to engage in these conversations 
with family, friends, acquaintances, and willing strangers to spark and deepen connection, understanding, and respect. Happy connecting.